Well, good morning, church. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm a part of the team, and it's great to have you with us today. You can keep your Bibles open to Genesis 1 and 2. That's where we're going to be uh, spending our time today. You know, I discovered this week that you can go online to ancestry.com.au and you can order what is called Ancestry DNA. According to the website, it's a simple DNA test that can reveal the people and places deep in your past where records can't always take you. Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? Apparently, you can discover your ethnic mix. You can discover the, the, pe- uh, the places that your ancestors lived. It's a test to help you discover your origins. Now, origins are important to us, aren't they? It's important to us to be able to answer the question, who am I? Where do I come from? These questions are at the heart of a lot of Disney movies. They're the subject of a lot of superhero stories. And what about you? How would you answer the question, where do I come from? Who am I? For me, it's easy enough to answer. Both sets of my grandparents emigrated from Holland. I was born at Northwest Hospital in Everton Park to Robin Yvonne Shoemaker. I lived and grew up in and around Pine Rivers. I still live and work in the area. By and large, I know who I am and where I come from. But there's a deeper level to this question, isn't there? Beyond where we were born and beyond where we live. We also wonder, where do we ultimately come from? Who are we really? Why are we here? What does it mean to be human? These are deep and significant questions. And how we answer these questions is fundamental to how we understand our lives and our world. For example, if, as many people around us believe, we are here by blind luck and random chance, then there really is no ultimate significance to our lives and to our world. Here's the way that one author and and cultural critic by the name of Neil Postman put it. He said, in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. The story of our origins and our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers probably by accident. And to the question, how will it all end, science answers probably by accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. To put it another way, if the beginning doesn't matter, and if the end doesn't matter, then why would anything in between really matter? And yet, none of us are content to live that way. We all want to know why we're here and where we've come from. And it's into these questions that the Bible speaks. We kicked off a new sermon series last week simply called The Bible, A Story That Makes Sense of Life. What we're doing over the next few months is we are looking at the big storyline of the Bible how the Bible fits together, and how the Bible makes sense of our lives. Last week, we looked at an introduction. We looked at an introduction to the Bible, and we kind of laid the foundation. What is the Bible? What is it all about? How is it put together? If you missed that, you can check it out online on our website or on YouTube. Today, we are going back to the beginning. We're looking at creation. 
the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, the, the first two chapters in the first book of the Bible, which are some of the most significant chapters in the Bible, because they provide answers to these big questions. They show us our ultimate origins. In fact, the word Genesis means origins or beginnings. These first two chapters, they take us back to the dawn of time, and they tell us how our universe came into being. They tell us who we are as human beings, and more importantly, why we are here. This is the opening scene of the greatest story of all time. Now, as we approach this first movement in the biblical storyline, as we look at the first significant landmark in the the biblical landscape, we're going to break it up into just two simple sections. Number one, what creation tells us about God? And then number two, what creation tells us about us? Now, before we dive into these two headings, let me just say something about the book of Genesis generally. Because Genesis 1 and 2 are not only some of the most important chapters in the Bible, they are also some of the most debated chapters in the Bible. They raise questions like, what do they tell us about the age of the universe? Did God create in six literal days? And so on and so forth. Now, these are good questions for Christians to wrestle with. But they're not the questions that we're going to wrestle with today. Because they're not the main point of the first two chapters. The main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to tell us exactly how God created everything, to give us a comprehensive scientific description. Rather, the main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to introduce us to the God who created everything, to tell us why he created and what it means for us. In other words, the ultimate point of these chapters is not to lead us into debate, but it's to lead us into awe and worship. Of God. And this is where I hope to lead us today. So let's begin by looking at what creation tells us about God. Now, like I said last week, the way a story begins is significant. And when we turn to the story of the Bible, we see the story begins with God. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. Before anything else even existed, God existed and has always existed. In other words, the Bible begins with God at the center of everything. And if we are going to understand our lives and our world, this is the discovery that we need to make. That we are not at the center of the universe, but God is. That God is the reason for everything. You know, it was back in 1543 that Nicholas Copernicus suggested a theory that changed the world. He suggested that the earth was not at the center of our solar system, but actually it was the sun that was at the center of everything. And his theory reoriented our thinking about the universe, or we might say it properly oriented our thinking about the universe. And this is kind of what Genesis 1 does. It properly orients our lives and our world. It shows us that God is at the center of everything. And this means that our lives will only make sense, they will only flourish if God is in his rightful place, if God is at the center. But of course, this still leaves us with a question, doesn't it? And that is, well, what is this God like? Because let's be honest, when we use the word God, that comes with a lot of baggage today. 
We need to be clear on who this God is and what this God is like. And this is really the the question that the rest of the Bible goes on to answer, but we're given some significant insights here in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'd like to share some of those insights. The first and most fundamental truth about God that we discover here is this. God is the only God, but not a lonely God. God is the only God, but not a lonely God. See, we are given hints right from the very beginning that there is one God, but this God exists in three persons. In other words, there are hints in Genesis 1 that God is not a lonely individual, but rather a lively interplay of loving relationship. Where do we see this? Well, first of all, when Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God, the noun God there, Elohim, is plural. Similarly, later in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God once again refers to himself in the plural. Now, it's not definitive, but it is a hint. Secondly, as the passage continues, we are introduced to God's spirit and God's word. They are the means by which God creates. The spirit of God hovers over the waters and the word of God brings everything into being. Now, again, they are only hints, but as the Bible unfolds, we discover much more. For example, when John, who who writes the gospel of John about Jesus' life, death and ministry, when he begins it in this way, we should sit up and take note. He says, in the beginning, does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, now John is intentionally alluding to Genesis chapter 1, and he is saying that Jesus, the Word, he was present at creation. You know, I think it's Louis Giglio that says, there is no such thing as B.C., You know, B.C., we divide our calendar, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini. Well, that's not true, theologically speaking. There has never been any time before Christ, because Christ, the eternal Son of God, has eternally existed. This is why, right from the very beginning, the story of the Bible introduces us to the God, who is the only God, but not a lonely God. Now, you might say, well, why does this matter? I mean, isn't the Trinity just kind of an academic point of discussion for theologians? And the answer is that this matters very, very much. I mean, we know the verse in the Bible that says God is love. Friends, this is why God is love. Because throughout all eternity, God the Father has been loving the Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. God is a loving community of three. This also tells us the reason that God created And it wasn't because he was lonely. It wasn't because he needed anything. Rather, it was out of the overflow of his love. Like a fountain, God's love overflowed. It was too good not to be shared. And so the first thing we see in Genesis 1 is that the God of the Bible is the only God, but not a lonely God. The second truth about God we see in Genesis 1 is this. God is the creator of everything. Genesis 1 verse 1 goes on to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens are everything above the earth and the earth is everything below the heavens. In other words, we could paraphrase this verse, in the beginning God created everything. 
everything. Now, this, this truth and the implications of it are far too massive to kind of deal with in one sermon. But let me just point out a few implications of the truth that God is the creator of everything. Firstly, if God made everything, God owns everything. I mean, if you make something, you own it. If you write a song or if you paint a painting, that painting and that song belong to you. Well, it's the same with our universe and everything in it. God made it, so God owns it. Look at what we read in Psalm 95, for example. Verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. Mount Everest... That belongs to God. The sea is his, for he made it. The Pacific Ocean, it belongs to God. And his hands formed the dry land. God made it, so God owns it. Now, what are the implications of this truth? Well, Psalm 95 goes on to show us. Look what it says. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Our only right response to this truth is worship. To worship God. Now, by the way, this is why the Bible forbids idolatry. Idolatry is worshipping anything other than God. Whether it's a person or a place or a job or any created thing. Because God and God alone is worthy of our worship. No created thing is worthy of our praise and worship. If God made everything, God owns everything. Secondly, if God made everything, God defines everything. God tells us the purpose of everything. God tells us how everything works. I mean, if you want to understand the iPhone, do you take it to Nokia or to Nike? You take it to Apple. Because Apple made the iPhone, they alone know, and they know how it works, the ins and the outs of it. It's the same with our world and everything in it. God made it, God alone knows how it is all supposed to work. Think about life like a plank of wood. There is a a pattern or a grain running through it. And if you want to avoid splinters, you have to go with the grain. To live according to God's design, it means to go with the grain of the universe. Now, does this mean we're always going to understand or agree with what God says? Not necessarily. But God made it. So God defines it. Thirdly, if God made everything, everything matters. See, Christians have an unfortunate tendency to consider spiritual as good and physical as bad. But Genesis 1 shows us something different. It shows us that when God created, he created a physical world. He made rocks, and he made them heavy. I moved a a cubic meter of them last weekend. He made trees and grass. He made us as physical beings. I mean, he made you with skin and bones and blood. To paraphrase Madonna, (laughs) yeah, that got your attention. You're all awake again. We are material people living in a material world. Never thought I'd quote Madonna in a sermon. (laughs) To put it more succinctly, 
And maybe more appropriately, matter matters. God made it and God cares about it. In fact, at the end of the creation account, after God has made everything, this is what we read in verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made. The oceans, the trees, the mountains, the rocks, the birds. And he saw that it was very good. Who are we to call bad what God calls good? See, God is interested in our whole selves, not just our spiritual selves, but our physical selves. Not just where we go when we die, but how we live in this world. If God made everything, then everything matters. These are just some of the implications of the truth that God is the creator of everything. And this leads us to the third truth that I'd like to highlight about God. The first is that God is the only God, but not a lonely God. The second is that God is the creator of everything. The third is that God is extravagantly generous. See, a lot of people today think about God as some kind of killjoy, a a grumpy grandfather in the sky, but Genesis chapter 1 shows us something very, very different. It shows us the extravagant generosity and creativity of God. I mean, God could have made a, a, a functional world, a world that worked but was bland and boring, a world without coffee, God forbid, or ice cream, or or animals, or colors, or or music. But thank God that he didn't. God created a good world full of good things. God created a world of order and beauty and diversity. And we see this in the way that the creation account unfolds. You see, it begins as this kind of dark, watery scene of chaos. Look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's this scene of dark, watery chaos, but then God begins his creative work. And in the table on the screen, you can see in the first three days of creation, God begins to fashion order out of chaos. God begins to bring form to a formless world. So day one, he separates the light and the darkness. Day two, he separates the waters to form the sky and the sea. Day three, he separates the sea to form dry land. God is creating creating ordered spaces. And then what you see on the next three days is that God begins to fill those spaces with beauty and diversity. And so day four is the creation of the lights for day and night, sun, moon, stars. Day five is the creation of birds and fish to fill the sky and the sea. Day six is the creation of animals and humans to fill the land. God creates an ordered world, and then he fills it with beauty and diversity. And this creation account shows to us the extravagant generosity of God. It shows us the goodness and the creativity and the glory of God. This is why the Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or as Paul Tripp, an author and a writer, puts it, He says, open your eyes and your heart to the glory that is everywhere around you. Every glorious created thing is designed by God to be a finger that points to his glory. How can we boil water, mash potatoes, scramble eggs without seeing the glory of God? How can we hold an infant in our hands without being in awe of her creator? How can a sunset not produce awe of God in us? How can tadpoles in a stream not make us smile in worship? 
How can the whistle of wind through the trees not become a hymn of praise in our hearts to God? God's glory is everywhere around you if you have the eyes to see. And this is what Genesis 1 shows us about God. It's that he is the only God, but not a lonely God. He is the creator of everything, and he is extravagantly generous. But of course, this creation account in Genesis 1, it not only introduces us to God, it also shows us our origins. It reveals to us our identity and purpose. And this brings us to our second heading, which is what creation tells us about us. Now again, there's there's more than I could cover in one sermon, so let me just point out two things that this creation account shows us about us. The first is this. We have been made with great value. We have been made with great value. Now, what does it mean to be a human? It's a big question with big implications. Here's the way one anthropologist responded. He said, human beings are animals. They are sometimes monsters, sometimes magnificent, but always animals. Now, he's right in a sense. I mean, we are creatures. In fact, according to our chemical composition, we are dust. That's got to make you feel good on a Sunday morning. I mean, this is exactly what the Bible says, Genesis chapter 3. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. But are we more than dust? Are we more than creatures? I mean, why is it that when we hold a newborn in our arms, we sense that there is something deeper? Why is it that when a loved one dies, we intuitively feel that they are more than dust? Well, the creation account gives us the answer. It says that we're not just creatures. We're also divine royalty with divine origins. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There are hidden depths to our humanity. There is a divine imprint on our souls. And this means our value cannot be reduced to our net worth, to our resume, to our body shape. Our value is given to us from above. We are made in the image of God. Now, this claim was actually controversial in the ancient world. See, in the ancient world, only male kings were considered to be a reflection of the divine image. It it justified their rule and it set them apart from the riffraff. But Genesis democratizes the idea. It says all humanity is created equal, created in the image of God. And this powerful truth has shaped and changed and transformed our world. It has provided the impetus and the rationale to overcome injustice and oppression. For example, the first person to publicly oppose the the, the system of slavery in the ancient world was a Christian leader called Gregory of Nyssa. He preached a sermon in AD 370 and he said this, how much gold for the image of God? How much silver for selling the God-formed human being? Who can buy a man or sell a man made in the image of God? Centuries later, Martin Luther King uh, preached his famous sermon or gave his famous speech. And he said, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every human from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard. 
See, the ideals of human dignity and equality and freedom, they are rooted in the Bible's definition of a human being. And this is why, as Christians, we should treat others accordingly. This is why, as Christians, we must reject all dehumanizing practices. Anything that would treat others as commercial property. Using people for our own economic advantage. Anything that would treat others like an object. Using someone for our own pleasure. These practices are abhorrent to God because all people are made in the image of God. All people have been made with great value. This is the first truth we learn about us from the creation account. We have been made with great value. But it's not the only one. We also see that we've been made with great purpose. I mean, what is a human being meant to do? Why are we here? Genesis 1 shows us. And the first thing it shows us is that we were made to flourish in relationships. And we've already pointed out that God himself exists in relationship in a loving community of three. And this is why to be made in God's image, it also means that we too are made for relationships. I mean, this is why during the the brief period in Genesis, when Adam is surrounded only by the animals, this is what God says. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, as a non-pet person, I feel vindicated by this. We need more than animals to flourish. Animals are good, you know, they're great, have your pets, that's fine. But we need more than animals. We need a relationship with God and with people. And this is a challenge to us in our culture, which puts productivity ahead of people, which puts career ahead of community, which puts money ahead of relationships. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's so true. When someone is on their deathbed, they're not talking about the car that they drove. They're not talking about the shares that they owned or the bonuses they received. What matters is relationship. I mean, the other day when I saw her for the final time, Joyce Van Egmont said to me, that my family has been such a blessing to me. We were made to flourish in relationships, both with God and with people. We were also made, Genesis shows us, to steward the earth's resources. The image of God is not only about relationship, it also carries responsibility to act on God's behalf by taking care of God's world. This is why the first thing that God says to the human couple is not eat, drink and be merry. He says, no, no, you've got work to do. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful. Some of that work is, is, is good work. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this is not an excuse to abuse the environment. This is actually a command to take care of the environment, to steward the earth's resources that God has given to us. We see this in in Genesis 2 as well. When God places Adam in in the garden, he doesn't give him a hammock and get angels to serve him pina coladas. No, we read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Here's the way one author named Andrew Ollerton kind of summarizes this. He says, God commissioned humanity to take the beauty of Eden and to extend it to the rest of the world subduing chaos and bringing order. 
God is not super spiritual, only interested in religious services and meditation. According to Genesis, all of life is spiritual and every task is in some sense sacred. Part of our human vocation was to build sustainable societies, whether through agriculture, music, textiles, architecture or other industry. This is what Genesis teaches us about us. We have been made with great value and we've been made with great purpose. Now, I know that we have covered a lot of ground. It's been a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. And you might be wondering, what's the point? What's the big picture? Well, the point is actually revealed for us in the seventh and final day of creation. Because the creation of human beings is not God's final act. God's final and climactic act is to rest. Chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. You see, God rested and God continues to rest. There is no end recorded to the seventh day like there is on all the other days. Now, this doesn't mean that God is not working. God continues to sustain his creation. Everything would fall apart without him. But he has rested from his work of creation. And he invites us to join him in this rest. Again, not to stop the things that he's called us to do, but to enter into the rest of relationship with him. This is why when Jesus was on earth, he offered us this invitation. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The goal of creation is to know and to enjoy and to glorify God. To enter into the rest of relationship with him. And this is the big picture of what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a, the world as God intended it to be. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. This is the idyllic beginning of the Bible. Now we know it doesn't stay that way for long, but that's what we're going to talk about next week. And for right now, the question is, what we asked at the very beginning. Who are you? Where have you come from? The answer of the Bible is that you belong to God and you have come from God. And you will only find the rest that you long for, that you were made for in relationship to God through faith in his son Jesus. To stop striving to prove yourself, to stop striving to defend yourself, and to put yourself into God's hands. And he will never let you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these profound words in the opening chapters of your book. We thank you that they show us, most importantly, who you are, your goodness and your greatness and your glory and who we are in light of that. Lord, where some of us have wandered from you, Lord, this morning we want to come back and we want to enter into the rest of knowing you. Or for some of us who have never placed ourselves in your hands, this morning we want to find 
that rest and relationship that we were made for. And Lord, help all of us to do what you've called us to do, to be who you've called us to be, to know you, to love you, to to love and serve others, and to take care of this world that you have entrusted to us for the good of others and the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.